Hey everybody, I'm Will Sipling, and I am going to be talking through the thesis that I wrote for my MA in Catholic Studies at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. So what I'm going to be presenting is actually a little bit different than what I turned in. I wasn't actually able to fully complete what I had wanted to complete when I set out to do my thesis. Namely, um, I was going to include, uh, in large part, a section on St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, he was included at the very, very end of my thesis, um, but in talking through it here, I'm going to be expanding the section on St. Francis. Uh, so what I'm calling this sort of expanded version of my thesis is on St. Stories and the Self, the Relegation, Re-Identification, and Recovery of the Self in Adorno, Horkheimer, Taylor, and Newman. So that's Charles Taylor and uh, John Henry Newman. So let's begin by talking about part one, what I call the relegation of the self in identifying the problem. So the problem or problems in a modern world may be expressed not only by a philosophical or historiographical tracing, but by an examination of the way one internalizes sense and experience data drawn from the things around us. And what I mean by that is this. We, we have issues plaguing us in the modern world, um, and we wouldn't say that these issues are necessarily the same ones that have maybe uh, endangered us in the past. Uh, thinking about, say, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, uh, many of us, at least in Western countries, do have many things that we need to, to, to meet our basic needs. Um, however, we do understand that there are issues just swirling around us in the world. Um, even, at a, even at a much more uh, bourgeois sort of philosophical level, uh, through uh, thinkers in what we broadly call modernity or postmodernity have identified these these kind of this this <laughs> I hate to call it a golden chain. It's really uh, um, the color is not quite so bright. This chain of violence that has really kind of overtaken the world that we live in today. And so modern thinkers, in their attempts to solve this problem of violence, so for instance, religious violence, uh, thinking about religions that have competing or contradictory claims to truth, well, one way to get past this is to develop a kind of worldview that doesn't allow for these differences in opinion that lead to, say, religious wars. And this is what we call, say, nominalism, uh, that is a modern movement that has to do with the naming of things, where you can name something and thereby in some way have some sort of power over it. You're able to, if you're able to code for it, so think about this, say, in social sciences, where if you have a set of survey responses, if you can kind of label um, a certain kind of response, then you're able to use that in a formula to test against it or test for it. Um, something similar kind of happens when we're able to nominalize things like miracles, right? So rather than say this is an external supernatural force breaking into what we generally consider to be a naturalistic reality, um, we can actually sort of explain these things away. Uh, maybe they are uncommon phenomena, but they are explainable, nameable phenomena nonetheless. We'll be talking specifically about this issue of um, a scientistic, not a scientific, but a scientific worldview throughout. 
Though modernity's scientism and empiricism have relegated the self's looking inwards as an inaccurate or unacceptable way of coming to knowledge. In certain fields, this is still allowed, say, maybe in ethnography, one is able to look at experience uh, and have this be, quote unquote, real data. We cannot avoid, in public communication or in interpersonal relationships, the importance of an examination that comes from a looking inside one's self. In fact, this is how we come to the problems in our world. Um, the problems that we face today, uh, which are incredibly obvious in, today, in today's political atmosphere, um, they're not ones that we would come to by means of symbolic logic. They're ones that we deeply feel, as it were. One obvious area of such issue is seen in the talking past one another phenomena that we see um, in our era, on the news, on, subject, uh, on social media, uh, where various interlocutors become Abbott and Costello playing a 21st century version of a politico-social-religious politico who's on first, a skit which stands in as a sad synecdoche of societal awareness regarding this deeper issue. So thinking in sort of this, uh, not analytic, but maybe perhaps psychoanalytic model, the fact that we have such problems presented in the world around us, um, where two different people uh, become opposing sides, as it were, or are made to fit this, this script of being in opposition, really reflects something deeper. You know, trying to fix the way that we argue on social media is just a bandage on something that is internal. We understand broadly that public discourse has devolved, um, and I don't believe this is because of an essential, in essay, desire to be contrarian or partisan. There is a deeper primordial issue, and what I will claim is that it is a loss of the self and its entelechy. One cannot have the interpersonal imagination to step into another's shoes if, the, if they have never identified their own. Fundamentally, dealing with communal issues uh, will invariably involve a multiplicity of selves. And since we are social creatures with hopes to affect positive change within our spheres of action, we must of necessity attempt to make, as it were, common sense of the self. A focus must be placed on re-identifying this internal ego who traverses these shared and embodied, that is, common and sensible spaces. The intuitions of common sense are being invoked here. Again, not something that comes as a result of a scientific formula or something that can be coded in how it might be used in statistics. Rather, common sense with an eye towards what we call the mythical dimension of moral experience. Such a dimension was assumed as normative by previous generations of selves, but recently relegated by modernity. Let's talk more about what I mean by myth here. A return to myth involves a return to ourselves and a sense of our place in the cosmos and the spiritual experiences contained therein. As Socrates reminded Callicles in the Gorgias, we may be reminded of our own relation to the universe and the pantheon. And though individual views from the self differ from every other's, the heavens and the gods and the mythoi of these transcendent stories may make space for discussions to begin. 
We are not confined to living a lifestyle of one thing after another by the market-driven, productivity-focused, and empirical transactions of the agora alone. Polis, in its fullness, has always required the liturgy, presence, and encounter with Acropolis. As Socrates, the philosopher, states, quote, Yes, Callicles, wise men claim that partnership, koinonane, and friendship, orderliness, self-control, and justice hold together heaven and earth, and gods and men. And that is why they call this universe a world order, cosmon, my friend, and not an undisciplined world disorder, a cosmia. So let's put this together. Socrates is telling Callicles, um, well, let's step back a bit. One interesting thing that Socrates claims of Callicles is that Callicles does not agree with Callicles. He does not agree with himself. He identifies particular problems in the world around him. But in his attempt to reach this highest good, in his attempt to, to, to be on that journey, he actually is off the, the right path to get there. And Socrates is attempting to point this out to him. One thing that Socrates is attempting to remind him and should remind us of something that uh, would have been more familiar with uh, for, for both Callicles and Socrates is that this partnership, this commonality and friendship is something that is between both heaven or the heavens and earth. And it's not just between the people on earth. He claims it's between gods and men. And not only that, he's, he's claiming that there is this cosmon, there is this world order. There is something that the world is ordered towards. And against, it's ordered against this acosmia, this anti-order. But I think the thing that will allow us to stay in line with the, the rhythms of the universe is to remember that the universe does not, in, that it includes more than just us. And perhaps relegating the self with its desires towards the mythical have caused this acosmia that we experience today. Let's move on to the next section. Let's discuss modernity's shortcomings. So whether or not one posits myth as the key for rediscovering the self, common ground may be found by examining what is working and what is not in our shared moral imaginaries. That is to say, like Callicles, we could have good, glorious, worthwhile end goals. But if what we are doing to get onto that path uh, isn't going to get us there, then it is worthwhile. It is for all of our good to be able to say, yes, that's a good goal, but is what you're doing actually going to take you there? The ethical commitments informing our modern social and political discourse are, for the most part, laudable. They have foci on greater good, greater efficiency, greater accountability for indiscretion and abuses, greater awareness for the need for the need for equitable justice. So vocal and public support for such goals should be relentless no matter who you are. But as the who's on first scenario suggests, there is, however, a tendency for such discourses to deteriorate or decay or perhaps become unfounded and self-contradictory in this Callicles-like way. And this thereby loses the ability to inspire action. We have vision, but it becomes disconnected from action. So what accounts for this? 
Conversations about current issues plaguing the world today may be categorized as eschatological utopic. So we're not trying to be parsimonious or conspiratorial. Uh, we don't mean something like left behind by talking about the eschatological. Rather, I'm referring here to a broadly shared belief that impending dangers threaten the world. And to meet these dangers, it requires action from us. So these kind of utopic eschatological frameworks are often unstated and operate underneath the surface of what we do. But they, they share this commonality in that they tend to be hopeful, intimating that, quote, the imminent future, in the imminent future, there will be a transition, either catastrophic or progressive, to a collective salvation. I think this is an interesting quote here. So in attempting to sort of define this underlying principle that operates in the world around us, that attempts to motivate us towards greater action of some kind, we can see these elements of what we call something like an eschatology, um, the, a view of, say, the last things. There's this great change, and what might differ between some of these different uh, views of this eschatological utopic vision would be how we get there. A catastrophe, an Armageddon-like event, or sort of a progressive working towards perfection. Something important here. I'm using these spiritual-loaded terms on purpose, and I don't mean to imply a specific soteriological commitment. Rather, I'm calling attention to the use of mythological language here, uh, ideas, images, um, in, in what might be considered to be purely secular dialogue. And further, the use of this mythical language and images, and these images serves a rhetorical purpose. First, indicate that the scale of these problems facing the world today are so vast that it would be an incredible understatement to describe these issues in any other way, right? We might say something in popular parlance that uh, these are issues of biblical proportion. Um, and second, to offer hope for something greater than the utopic heaven-like end of a merely materialistic eschatology. The way that we speak of problems in the world today indicates the centrality of an inherent mythology, that which could be optimistic or hopeful, engaging in thought bigger than us, appealing to higher powers even. Maybe it's something like Mother Earth. Maybe it's something like we need to do our part to change our consumeristic habits. We can be involved. And if we do that, then that will lead to greater good for generations to come, for our planet. There's this legacy language. There's this warning language that's involved in this. It's a language that emerges from the depths. But it's precisely here that modern political and social discourse finds itself hamstrung. Modern ontological commitments preclude the deep roots from which its discourses emerge, severing the vital veins of connection between action and the mythological self-narratives from which they spring. To recognize this, we need only cup a metaphorical hand over our ear, listening for this sense of the common in everyday grievances. Let's talk about three broad categories. Work, economics, and technology— that's the first category. Sorry, that's a little bit confusing. The first category is work economics and technology. The second is environmental care. And the third, interpersonal relationships. 
In each of these discourses, issue identification and issue resolution have come apart. Let's talk about that first issue, the um, issue of work, economics, and technology. Where does the self find itself as a producer? Today, the self finds its home and center point instantiated in the modern market, economy, and workplace. As a result, these arenas are saturated with mythological language. One speaks of open office plans and free beer after four o'clock as being spell-binding perks, or employees might talk about their bosses with awe and veneration, or use similar phrases imported from a sacramental worldview to discuss corporate identity as a mediation of grace. However, the desire for human dignity in the workplace has not been actualized through these different means or even through things that are more policy-related, affirmative action, diversifying staffs, trying to build upon uh, what is probably automatically included for a good or bad towards this greater end. However, as I mentioned, our vision has become disconnected from, from our actions. Rather, it appears that in many cases, technology Hyper-optimization and the need for higher outputs have led to more efficient dehumanization. The self has been lost. Not all are welcome to the one body and one family gathered together in fellowship around the boardroom table. Forms of indentured servitude still exist in numerous places in the global economy, even in the most developed ones, and many are forced, in these kinds of economies, to work multiple low-paying jobs to scrape together basic insurance benefits to pay ballooning student loans. For those who have more cash on hand, convenience is the hot commodity, and often comes at the expense of alienating workers from their labor. Seen in systems supporting Amazon one-day shipping or yearly phone device upgrade cycles, or even worse, building the kind of economy that leads to suicide or accidental death resulting from these systems which give consumers unrealistic expectations of immediate service and gratification. Here I cite specifically the case of Foxconn, the technology company that provides Apple with their uh, products. Also, the, an article called The Cost of Next Day Delivery, how Amazon um, outsources its delivery, uh, its delivery vehicles. And there have been accidents caused, uh, or maybe not even caused by, by, by these vehicles, um, but because of how Amazon runs its corporate structure, they can get away scot-free, no legal issues to worry about through the way that they run their contracting. So it seems that our well-meaning attempts, broadly speaking, towards a, quote, diligent, intelligent, and rational work ethic, which promised self-actualization and self-expression, have been hijacked by exploitative practices and cronyism, while the constant drive for greater and greater efficiency and profit comes at the cost of the human person. Thus, Edward Bernays's sad indictment. It is all, quote, rubber stamps rubber stamps. Each man's rubber stamps are the duplicates of millions of others. Let's talk about the second, um, the second issue that is worthy of our examination, the self and the world, environmental care. It is certainly the case that awareness concerning environmental issues is more top of mind to moderns than perhaps in previous times. 
And here, too, religious-sounding eschatological language enters these conversations, expressing a desire to escape global catastrophe and enter into a utopic world. If imminent environmental threats are not dealt with, failure to protect the world will result in its violent and cataclysmic destruction. These issues can be considered eschatological because they are experienced as all-encompassing. They involve the entire literal earth. It requires the, to deal with these issues requires the self-action through activism, um, alterations in lifestyle, potential sacrifices in travel or purchasing habits, and it includes the presence of existential threats, global meltdown namely. However, for all of the recent political engagement, awareness campaigns, and climate care programs, even ones um, sponsored by or um, uh, originating in from, from, from religious, religious circles, something is lacking for individuals on the whole are unmotivated to, to, to participate in the radical action needed for the good of both future generations and the planet itself. Little has been accomplished to slow the effects of global warming, plastic pollution, and mass consumption of unneeded goods. Unable to recognize the depths from which its mythological language springs, modernity's high moral aspirations are hijacked by its philosophical failures. Even an incentive like stopping or slowing global environmental crises cannot get a rise out of the average modern, who is transfixed on the removal of religious language or sedated by the distractions of always-present technology and always-on work. Lastly, let's talk about the self with others in our interpersonal relationships. This is that, that third issue that we're discussing. So another decline in a world claiming movement towards actualization is in the realm of human relationships. The 20th and 21st centuries, though often credited as being forward-facing, progressive, and economically uh, and socially stable, and it's true, there have been great and incredible strides on many, 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 many levels. But this same era has birthed the Holocaust and apartheid. Obviously, these are extreme examples, but on a more mundane level, there is the experience of everyday alienation, societal pressure, depression, disconnection, and more. One example would be from the sexual revolution's victories. They've already lost their luster for most moderns, with fewer and fewer young people engaging in intercourse, or to put it another way, selves are unable to connect with others. Intimacy Various definitions of this uh, apply, of course. Intimacy, in many cases, has been replaced with, with um, depersonalized privacy um, of por pornography usage, resulting in sexual dysfunction and contributing in, in, to various forms of exploitation, including human trafficking. Not to mention the kinds of apps and services where one r literally rates the appearances of other human beings. When it comes to our human relationships, it isn't just app users, the, the young, um, but also the elderly as well. All age cohorts report greater and greater loneliness and social isolation in general. And many of us mourn the loss of institutions that previously brought about human interaction and social discourse. Even Richard Dawkins, the famous militant atheist, considers himself to be a secular Christian with a, quote, feeling for nostalgia and ceremonies that had in a previous culture been a part of the service of organized religion. 
Though communication technology has made human interaction immediate, many seem to believe that something is missing when contact is digitally mediated, distilled, or always happening in the context of billboards and banner ads. And that's the end of the first section, the introduction to the, the thesis and the introduction to the problem itself. As we said, we are living in a modern world that has had as its goal something laudable, a way to step back from the violence in the world that is caused everywhere, it seems. But, but what was told uh, by the, the idea of modernity was that through particular ways of, of, of expressing oneself in the world, particularly uh, through a sort of um, nominalizing tendency, a reducing down of things, this has also reduced the human person. And in an attempt to get past the issues that cause um, differences in opinions that can lead to uh, various kinds of violence, this, is actually, this impulse has actually watered down the human person. So it's not as if to get to, get to a, a better world to live in, we simply remove the things that could potentially cause issue. Because by removing those things, we're actually doing a kind of violence in of itself. And selves in this world pay the price. <laughs>